Amen. Good morning. It's hard to beat a celebration of the entry of the king than with the baptism of two new citizens of the kingdom. Well, that was awesome to see. Um, thank you for uh, letting me speak to you this morning. My name is Bradley Erickson. Um, Charles invited me to speak. He actually said uh, he, he wanted to have something a little different this morning. Um, and I don't know on the scale of different whether I'm in the variety or weird category. Um, but you can let me know at the end of the service which one you think this hits. Um, so today is Palm Sunday. Um, this is a, a festival, a, a celebration on the Christian calendar uh, the week before Jesus' death and resurrection. As we enter this week and we reflect on the events that took place 2,000 years ago, um, this morning I want to look at the story of the triumphal entry, as it's called, Jesus entering Jerusalem and its historical, prophetic, and cosmic context. Now, this, is, this event is described uh, by all four gospel narratives. And as we should expect from eyewitness testimony, each narrative has slightly different levels of detail which are highlighted. Uh, this is like if you uh, were in a crash and the police showed up and they interviewed all the witnesses. Everybody's seeing it from just a slightly different perspective. You know, this guy over here saying, well, this car went first and this one saying, well, the light was green. And everybody who's experiencing those events, they have a different point of view. And this is one of the reasons why we are given uh, four Gospels. And it represents not just four perspectives, but in the case of, say, Luke, he actually interviewed multiple eyewitnesses to uh, create uh, the narrative that he shares with us. And so we're going to be looking at all of those four instances uh, of the triumphal entry, but we're going to open this morning with the one featured in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 1 through 11. And so if you are able and willing to stand, if you would stand with me, please, while we read this. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven! He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We just thank you so much for the celebration of these holy days, these days looking back at the events involving your son, at his majesty, and splendor, and at the same time, humility. As He came to earth to save us. 
Be with us this morning and throughout the rest of the week as we study your word. I pray that he would be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's rewind the story a little bit for some context. Um, I'm going to go about a thousand years before these events uh, to what Charles actually covered last week. Uh, Since January, we've been studying the life of David. We looked at his ascendance to the throne, his success and failures. And it was a great series. And if you missed any of it, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. And then last week, Charles read to us David's last words. His reflections on his highs and lows and the faithfulness of God through his years of rule. And with his death, the reign of the greatest king in the history of the kingdom comes to an end. A few weeks before that, though, Larry shared with us a promise given by God to David about his house and his kingdom in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. And this, this promise from God to David is repeated in a psalm as well, Psalm 89, starting in verse 20. I have found David my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. My hand will always be with him and my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not oppress him. The wicked will not afflict him. I will crush his foes before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and love will be with him. And through my name, his horn will be exalted. I will extend his power to the sea and his right hand to the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. I will always preserve my faithful love for him and my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as heaven lasts. If his sons abandon my instruction and do not live by my ordinances, if they dishonor my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will call their rebellion to account with the rod, their iniquity with blows. I will not violate my covenant or change what my lips have said. Once and for all, I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring will continue forever. His throne like the sun before me, like the moon established forever, a faithful witness in the sky. Salah. And so as we continue reading, we see David's line continues through his son Solomon, the man who asked God for wisdom. And he builds the temple just as God promised David he would. But his life is rife with issues, including idol worship. And some of his decisions, especially compounded by those of his son, caused the kingdom of Israel to split into two, becoming Judah and Israel. But this promise to David is still prominent. Solomon's grandson, King Abijah, actually argues for the reunification of the kingdom because of God's promise. In 2 Chronicles 13, he says, Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? 
And while there are a handful of exceptions, king after king fails to follow God. You will read one after another in the books of Kings and Chronicles, something like, he did not do what was right in the Lord's sight like his ancestor David. Eighteen total generations pass from David. Trouble upon trouble is heaped on the people of Judah, sometimes interrupted by a brief era of repentance and peace. And then we get to a man named Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim. Jeconiah, like most of his fathers, also did evil in the sight of the Lord. In Jeremiah 22, starting in verse 24, it says, As I live, this is the Lord's decoration. Through you, Coniah, son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, or though you, Coniah, son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, I would tear you from it. In fact, I will hand you over to those you dread who intend to take your life, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who gave birth to you into another land where neither of you were born, and there you will both die. They will never return to the land they long to return to. Is this man, Coniah, despised, shattered pot ajar no one wants? Why are he and his descendants hurled out and cast into a land they have not known? Earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as childless, a man who will not be successful in his lifetime. None of his descendants will succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And this came to pass. Jeconiah reigned for three years and ten, or excuse me, three months and ten days. Then the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, take the kingdom of Judah into captivity just as God foretold. And there has been no true king in Judah from the line of David for over 500 years. The people have been promised a king from the line of David, but the line's been cursed from Jeconiah. Things seem impossible as those centuries passed. To make matter worse, they've been suffering under a cycle of subjugation from outsiders. By the time of our narrative, they are ruled by the Romans, and they still live in this tension of God promised a throne forever, and then God said it's not going to happen. Imagine you are a first century Jew, desperate for independence from the tyranny of Rome. You are anxious for you and your relatives and your friends and your countrymen to escape vassalhood and become a true nation once again. And suddenly there's hope. We have this man called Jesus, and he's popular. Maybe not with the Pharisees and teachers, but with the people for sure. And he's also uniquely, royally, and legally qualified for the position. According to his genealogy in Matthew 1, he's the firstborn in the royal line, a descendant of Solomon, but through adoption. Thus he bypasses the curse as he's not a blood descendant of Jeconi. Still of the tribe of Judah, a son of David, instead through the Nathan, according to the genealogy of Luke. Now, when I get to the genealogies, I have to admit, like, most of the time I'm like, yep, son of, son of, son of, son of, and you just kind of skim down until you get, okay, I get, get a little bit past that part. Um, but they're there for a reason, right? The genealogies are very important to the ancient Israelites and to the Jews of Jesus' day. 
In fact, you can read in the Old Testament uh, of many priests being disqualified because they can't prove that they're Levites through their genealogy. And you need that here. You need a genealogy that matches up, that proves that you are the heir to the throne. To ascend to the throne, to take the throne, you have to be a true son. And up until the entry to Jerusalem, you'll find something interesting in the gospel narratives. That Jesus has tried to keep control of how much attention is brought his way. Sometimes you'll read about him healing someone and he says, yeah, don't tell anybody. Keep it on the down low, just between me and you. Now, most of the time, most, most people don't listen to him. <laughs> they, you know, and understandably, they go crazy because they've been healed. They've, they've been made to see. They can now walk when they couldn't. How could you not tell someone? That guy did it. But Jesus says, please don't. Okay? And when he does cause a, a necessary controversy, he slips away and escapes. In one instance, in John chapter 7, he says, Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And this culminates with the healing of Lazarus, as Jonah mentioned. A miracle so great it could not be hidden. In fact, the triumphal entry narrative in John says this in John 12, Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. Those crowds that he tried to escape, that he slipped from, it wasn't happening anymore. And the response from the chief priests and Pharisees to both the miracle and his popularity with the people is to seek Jesus' death. And this we see in John chapter 11. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew he, where he was, he should report so that he should report it so that they could arrest him. Would he attend? Everyone is wondering. Those who seek his life and those who follow him. And I don't know about you, but if someone was out to kill me, I would probably steer clear of the city. I don't think I would go. It would take some courage to show up. Or at the very least, maybe I sneak in and kind of be like, yeah, I'm over here. I'm still doing my thing. Don't notice me. But I guess the hour has come. Because that's not what Jesus does. Jesus arranges an entry into the city that is the opposite of subtle. It is a courageous, brazen declaration of authority and intent. Now, the signs maybe aren't as visible to us as readers in the 21st century, but they would be glaringly obvious to anyone at the time. And the first is that he enters the city on a donkey. Now, for me, I was like, yeah, yeah, he rode a donkey. Um, there's nothing majestic about a donkey uh, in, in this day and age. It, it's a diminutive animal. It's not as cool as those, like, huge Clydesdale war horses. Um, but a donkey or a mule is the, transport, the royal transport of the ancient world. 
It's not a horse symbolizing war, but a donkey or mule that symbolizes peace. And you can see an example of this in 1 Kings 133, where David instructs Solomon to ride a mule for his coronation. And not only does that, he does he do this as a symbol of his coronation, but it is also the fulfillment of a prophecy, no less. One of hundreds Jesus fulfilled. John makes particular note that it fulfills Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. John's narrative also tells us that the crowd cut palm branches to spread before Jesus. And Luke expands on that, saying that they also threw their cloaks on the ground before him. This is the red carpet treatment of today. And in this time, it's a symbolic prostration of the crowd before their king. And then the crowds participate further in worship. And I'm just going to read what each gospel writer says as they describe this one after the other. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. They knew who he was. And they give him the honor that was due him. And as Tommy mentioned, the word Hosanna that we sang this morning is from the Hebrew. It's an exclamation of praise, a plea for salvation. And you'll find its origin in Psalm 118, verse 25, where it says, The Lord save us. Lord, please grant us success. The Hebrew words yasha, which means deliver and save, and ana, which means beg, beseech, combine to form the word that we derived in English, hosanna. Hosanna means I beg you to save or please deliver us. And that hope in deliverance shines through in the things that they shout at him as he enters the city. And they understand, at least in this sense, who their king is. And at the entrance of the king, the whole city is disrupted. Matthew 21 describes it this way. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? And among those upset were, of course, the Pharisees. Luke 19 39 says, Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silence, the stones would cry out. Now, what Jesus says here always gives me goosebumps. He takes the moment, the event, and expands it. 
He reveals the true depth of things, the scope of reality that's beyond everyday life, that's beyond politics, beyond earthly kingdoms and thrones, and he sets it against the cosmic backdrop, that story that God set in motion before the world came into being. If this was just a historical event in Jewish history, we might as well be talking about Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or George Washington this morning. Make no mistake, it is a historical event. 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. But it's not just a historical event. It's never just with Jesus. Any other person making this claim, we could write it off as using hyperbole, the stones would cry out. Or maybe if they meant it, madness. But not him. When he says it, it is the author of reality speaking. Colossians 1.16 says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. When Jesus says the stones would cry out, you had better believe they would cry out. If mankind would not fulfill their duty to their Lord and Creator and King, the stones would. And I don't know what stones crying out, calling praises to God sounds like, but this is commanded of all creation in the Psalms. Psalms 148 says, Praise the Lord from the heaven." From the earth, all sea monsters and ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and cloud, stormy wind that executes his command, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creatures that crawl and flying birds, kings of the earth and all the peoples, princes and all the judges of the earth, young men as well as young women, old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty covers the earth. Psalm 96 verse 11 says, Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His faithfulness. With righteousness and faithfulness, he will judge the world, this psalm says. And Jesus talks about this to this same crowd after he enters. In John 12, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of the, this world will be cast out. As for me, I am lifted up from the earth. I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Who is the ruler of this world? Paul expands on this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you were previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of the flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. This is more than just a historic struggle over the Jewish throne. This is the deepest story of humanity. All of us from Adam to me standing here before you today lived according to our fleshly desires and inclinations of the flesh. Servants not of the living God, but the ruler of the power of the air, Satan. 
This is an ancient animosity between the power of this world, the devil, and the creator that stretches back to the garden in Genesis when God curses the serpent in Genesis 3.14. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And God fulfills this promise. The God-man enters history as a baby. He grows in wisdom and stature to a man, a prophet unlike any other in history. That prophet rides into Jerusalem as king, inheritor of the throne of David. But the king is arrested and betrayed by his own. And by the end of the week, the crowd turns against him. Instead of shouting Hosanna in the highest, they shout, crucify him. And the robe he dons is a royal purple, but it drips with the blood from the stripes that cover his body. He is not crowned with a glittering diadem, but with a ribbon of thorns that pierce his skin. The throne he steps up to is not a massive gold throne or not a throne of swords, but a cross. And they acknowledge his royalty only as a charge against him on a crude sign hung above his head that says, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And after this suffering, he says to tell us thy, it is is finished and he gives up his spirit and he dies and if the story ended there it would be a tragedy the story of the betrayed king but glory be to god that it is not it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him he has risen he overcame death For God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The suffering servant won. Colossians 2.13 says, And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. He ascended to heaven, our Christ, where God said, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies my footstool. And this he did, just as God judged the ancient Egyptian gods, just as he defeated Baal, Molech, and Dagon, just as he conquered Zeus and Hera and Pluto and the other capricious gods of the Greeks and Romans. He will judge the gods of our day. He will judge the millions of gods of the Hindu, Allah, and Buddha. He will judge the idols of expressive individualism and secularism so cherished and worshipped in our own culture. He will judge the nations of men who turned aside from him to follow these vile things. And like a great boulder thrown into a lake, we are riding the wave caused by the God-man Jesus into the future as the impact of his finished work sets everything right. In that final day, he will take every wicked ruler, authority, cosmic power over this present darkness, every spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places, including Satan, and every enemy of what is true and righteous and beautiful. Along with death itself, he will cast them into the outer darkness the eternal fire. And those of us who are servants of this world, who are part of the kingdom of this world, we will be cast there as well. But those of us who turn 
who repent, who shout, Hosanna, Lord, save us, who cast our old self, our cloaks, at the foot of the cross and take up the new self that he gives us. Through his death, our names will be written in the book of life. Philippians 2.6 said, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't matter which kingdom you belong to, you will submit to him, because he is the king of everything, the Lord of everything, the owner of it all. And we can look forward to a future Palm Sunday promised in Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they all fell, down before the, fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. You see, they don't, they don't need to say Hosanna this time because the salvation has already come. They don't have to cry out to God to save us because it's completed. The Lord is king forever and ever. Would you stand with me? We'll pray and then sing our hymn of invitation. Our Heavenly Father, we just lift up your name this morning. You have set Jesus on your righteous throne. You have given him dominion over everything. And there's no reason for us to be anxious about anything. God, you know the turmoil in the world, the strife, the suffering, the evil is being committed. I pray that you would give it a, a spirit of boldness to understand that when you said it is finished on the cross, that it was done. We're just watching it play out. We just thank you so much for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.